This morning I'd like to continue with exploring how to practice with uh, challenges. And this morning continuing the focus on practicing with challenging thoughts and emotions. During January and February, we looked at um, the value of what uh, I call heart practices, such as metta, loving-kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, particularly for being with challenging situations. And uh, in particular, the last um, time, and a little bit the time before, we've looked at how to practice with, uh, with uh, challenging thoughts and emotions. Last time, in particular, I looked uh, both in general at practicing with thoughts and emotions, practicing with challenging thoughts and emotions, and we looked in detail at two kinds of uh, challenges, namely working with uh, manifestations of the judgmental mind and also working with anger. And what I want to do today is to briefly go back and look at some of the general principles of working with thoughts and emotions, but give most of the time to looking at how we work with a further challenging, really emotion-thought complex, which is that of fear. We could, the fear family, including anxiety and so forth. But also give a little more attention to what I didn't do so much uh, last time, which is talking about various kinds of skillful means for working with challenging thoughts and emotions. Okay? So, in general, we looked at the way that uh, our practice is based on the commitment to be uh, increasingly responsive rather than reactive to every moment of experience. Another way we could say that is to become increasingly free and not driven by reactions, by habitual patterns, by residues of the past, by um, forces which push us around, push our minds around, our uh, emotional reactions and so forth. And last time I talked some about how this very everyday way of talking about becoming more responsive rather than reactive is not only, I I believe, the heart of our practice, but it's a very down-to-earth and even secular way of talking about the core of the whole of the Buddhist teachings. And in particular, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths can be understood as essentially seeing where we get stuck, where we're reactive, where we suffer, seeing the roots of that, and then also seeing how to Uh, be free of those patterns, those forms of reaction. And the Four Noble Truths is really a teaching of both how we get stuck, how we suffer, and then how we become free, and the possibility of freedom. And it's a wonderful way to simplify our practice. Just say, okay, all I want to do is be able to be responsive, not reactive. Okay. I'll go to this meeting with that intention. I'll go to this family gathering with that intention. I'll I'll be with this difficult experience and remember that. I think it's quite, quite significant. So that's really the heart 
of what we're doing. And everything else, as is said um, sometimes, everything else is commentary. <laughs> okay, that's it. And so if we can remember to be responsive, then we stay in touch with our practice. And of course, it's easier to be responsive in some circumstances and harder in others. And so our focus uh, the last two times and today is in particular how can we be responsive when there are challenging situations and which and in which the tendencies to be reactive are strong. How do we do that? This is really again uh, one of the places where there is tremendous potential for growth and for uh, tremendous benefit in terms of our lives because I would say that, well, um, our own suffering and the suffering in the world is related to what we're calling reactivity, which is the automatic, um, usually re reactivity is a, is a word that we tended to use in the West. I don't know if it translates directly into any um, word in, in the Buddhist languages, but it really is a word that I use almost as shorthand for suffering. You know, it's the automatic tendency to push away, automatic or quasi-automatic or compulsive tendency to push away something, uh, a person, a thought, an emotion, an experience. And it's, reactivity is also about grabbing hold of things. Both of those reflect a kind of resistance to the present moment. We can more easily see the pushing away as reactive we tend to think the grabbing hold of what we like, that's not reactive. That's just going for the good things. But it's something to look into. The teachings certainly are that reaction is whatever we do that is automatic, relatively unconscious. Again, using the understanding of the brain, we would say it's having a stimulus trigger a particular neural pathway that is well-worn, and we simply go down it again. <laughs> and that, that way of looking at it, it's easy to see that it could be, as it were, pleasant or unpleasant. So, so in uh, working with challenges, we follow really certain principles. One of them, again, these are things we can remember. One is that we make a commitment to be responsive even when it's hard, which is a very, very deep commitment. It means I want to be responsive even if someone, quote-unquote, has done me wrong. Even if there's injustice. Even if there's a problem. I want to respond rather than react. Um, and that is a very deep commitment. It's basically saying, I want to respond in every situation and not be driven. And it's very hard in certain circumstances. And this is really, for many of us, this is a major edge of our practice and learning. Part of it is saying, may I take everything as learning. It's framing our lives as being on a journey of learning, rather than just going for the good things and avoiding the bad. It's accepting that challenges can be positive, and even saying, Oh, look, a challenge, something to learn, <laughs> right? Rather than saying, another challenge, hmm. 
This is from uh, the Buddha. Some practitioner is extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him or her. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch him or her that it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. So we take on the challenges. We're willing to do that. And related to that point, really a qualification of what I just said, is that it's very helpful to know uh, how uh, capable we are of taking on a given challenge. And this is to use uh, a framework which I find helpful, which is the framework of assessing the so-called degree of difficulty of a situation. And using the model of the um, diver who has a degree of difficulty up to 10. It's very important to know what degree of difficulty this challenge is and do I have the resources to deal with it. Sometimes I don't, right? And it's not wise to throw oneself into a challenge when one doesn't have the resources. So it's very helpful to know what's the degree of difficulty, do I have the resources, is this wise to take this on, to enter into it? Because sometimes there is a challenge or a difficulty and it's actually wise to retreat, to not take on this quote-unquote battle. Right? And that really has to, that has to do with wisdom. So I'm not saying every challenge that comes your way, embrace it wholeheartedly. Some challenges are not so good to accept. Maybe you're depleted, you're, you're um, in a difficult place, something difficult happens, maybe a difficult interaction, and you say, maybe tell a friend, I really want to work this out, can we wait two weeks? That's often very wise. You know, so one can keep the intention to respond, but deal with uh, appropriate timing. And I always like the fact that the Buddha had as one of his guidelines for skillful speech, good timing. I always like to think of him going around telling people or asking people, how's your timing? <laughs> Do you have good timing now? And so forth. So it's actually very crucial. And it's related to this theme of uh, degrees of difficulty. Part of what's really radical about this stance is that we take responsibility for our own experience. I take responsibility for my reactions. And I don't blame my experience on others. Again, that goes against a lot of our tendencies. It even goes against a lot of the way we use language in English, in which it's common to say, you made me angry. Right? Or you, you know, did this or did that, resulting in my emotions. And here, we actually take radical responsibility for our own experience and we make a distinction between being triggered by another person, which always happens, can always happen, and uh, having our experience caused by another person. They're very, very different, and there's a very crucial difference there. And so we can see that someone triggered my anger, but the person didn't cause it, because I know from past experience, in many situations, uh, I may have been angry at something five years ago, and now I'm not because I've worked through something in an inner way. We know that, in other words, that there are inner factors which affect whether I become angry, whether I become reactive. 
and that I want to take responsibility for those inner factors. So that's a, that's a challenging teaching, isn't it? It makes it not so easy to take the, um, so to speak, the easy way out. You did it. You caused my experience. If you were a better person, I wouldn't suffer. Right? Do we know that one? <laughs> so this is, this is challenging. This is, this is a radical teaching. And I've mentioned also how crucial this practice is for our world. That, you know, the headlines these days are about very serious protracted uh, conflicts, which are, have tremendous reactivity on both sides, or sometimes multiple sides, actually. They're multi- often conflicts have five sides, right? And, and the world deeply needs people who can be responsive and be able to work with, be able to work with uh, reactivity, with how to respond to challenges. And I'm imagining that all of us here can make that uh, commitment, can take that on and bring more responsiveness to all the parts of your world, your inner world, your world of people close to you, your work world, your community, and then your participation in the larger world, because uh, we deeply need that. And um, it's, I think the uh, principles here are in part, you know, when we take them to larger levels, are the principles of peacemaking. It's part of the principles. You know, we need other tools as well, but they're, they're very crucial. So in uh, practicing, you know, bringing this uh, commitment to responsiveness to working with challenging thoughts and emotions, I've talked about three ways, uh, three broad ways of working with challenging thoughts and emotions. And last time I, I, we went into some detail about how to do that with judgmental mind and with, with um, anger. And I'll do that in a moment with fear or with the, the family of uh, emotions and thoughts related to fear. But I wanted to go back to those three ways of, re- of really responding. One is that when we're not in balance with a difficult experience, the first um, priority is to come back to balance. And we've looked uh, the last two weeks at all sorts of ways we come back to balance. Coming back to balance means moving out of reactivity. Sometimes re- um, the reactivity has a profound impact on one's body. You know, sometimes we get triggered in anger and there are all sorts of... Um, Hormones that are secreted, you know, our bodies change. The psychologists talk about being flooded, right? And it's almost like we can't, as long as those, you know, um, changes physiologically are happening, it's almost hard to actually be responsive. Do you know that one? Right? So sometimes we have to do whatever it takes to bring us back to balance physiologically, emotionally, in terms of our thoughts before we respond. What this means is that's often skillful, as I was saying earlier, to not respond right away when it's not possible. And to know, to know when it's not possible to respond. With anger, last time we looked at how it's very skillful to distinguish between the experience of anger and what we do with the anger. And often when we're angry, we're flooded, we're in a place where we're not balanced, suspend action. Very, very wise. Very, very wise to suspend action 
You know, it could be for an hour, it could be for a week in an interpersonal relationship. It would, might be for what, a certain amount of time. We might say, I'm, I, I really want to come back and you know, work this out, but I can't do it right now. You know, or I'm just not in a state where I can proceed and be wise. You know, I would just be reactive. You know, and we have to really uh, stay with that. Even other people might say, oh, just be reactive. Right? Um, and so we have to have that, a certain firmness of knowing where we're at, even when other people sometimes have an investment in continuing the conflict. Do you know that one? So that's, that's important to, to know. So we do all sorts of things. We might do things which help us come to ba- balance physically, physiologically, exercise, take a walk, do qigong, do different practice, different body practices, be with beauty. We mentioned all sorts of ways to come back to balance, um, ways to calm our system, calm our nervous system, uh, ways to be with, um, to kind of uh, comfort ourselves, to work with um, heart practices, work with metta, come back to balance by going to compassion, to the kind heart, offering oneself um, self-compassion, all sorts of tools that we can use. Uh, Sometimes it's valuable to come back to balance, to go to what's pleasant, to be with beauty, to um, sometimes to talk with a friend. I think we know all the, you know, a lot of these tools and we've gone, we've gone over them. Um, And those kind of connect with the whole point of um, skillful means. And then we can work, you know, we can work with mindfulness. We can, uh, when we're relatively balanced, it's tremendously valuable to explore, much in the way we did at the end of the sitting, to explore challenging emotions with mindfulness, to be present and say, what is this? And I gave stories last time of how we can be mindful with judgmental mind, with anger, and actually explore it, see what it's like. Most of us, I know for myself, I'll speak for myself, before I started practicing mindfulness, I didn't actually, I think, know what these difficult emotions were really like. You know, I hadn't really just hung out with anger. I, anger came, typically, in my conditioning, I wanted to get rid of it. Right? Judgments came, I was probably at, at their mercy. Right? With mindfulness, we actually explore and the deeper transformation of difficult emotions comes from knowledge and insight and compassion. We actually see what anger is, we see what judgment is. Last time we saw how when we explore things, uh, uh, difficult thoughts and emotions like judgments and anger, sometimes we find, oh, something else is beneath it. Something else is driving it. You know, that often beneath anger can be sadness. And sometimes we can even find love beneath the anger. In some situations, the mother going angry with the child who's gone off into the street, right? There's love there. Or, you know, I, I talked about my, some of my own work with anger, where some of my anger about what was happening in our community was based on care. I could, I could actually, when I was mindful with the anger, it could go down and actually touch sadness, and then even touch that there was love and care that was driving the anger. I'm not saying that all anger is like that. I think there's some anger which is quite delusive and totally, you know, almost totally reactive. And I, but uh, quite an, a lot of anger, maybe the anger 
of activism, a lot of the anger of activism, which can really get lost in the anger. Beneath it sometimes is, is care or wishing for justice and so forth. And people can get really uh, disconnected with their anger. So with the mindfulness we explore, we sometimes go beneath the surface, we go more deeply, we just hang out. We don't, uh, we don't so much try to manipulate it, but we just stay with it. We just stay with the anger, we just stay with the judgment and explore. And that takes a lot of patience, you know, that, this tool of mindfulness. So I'll come back to that, and I'll come back to that tool and tools for balancing in the context of working with fear. So we use this technique of recognizing, accepting, or allowing, investigating, and then doing so with non-identification that go under the acronym of RAIN, which we explored some the last two times and explored a lot in our um, meditation session um, today. I wanted to say a little bit more about what constitutes skillful response and then talk about fear. There are a lot of things that uh, really uh, can fill out, uh, you know, a toolbox. I think as we get wiser, we develop a toolbox of various tools, practices, principles for working with challenging thoughts and emotions. And I wanted to mention a few of those. Um, one very important uh, resource, and we can think of it as a tool in a way, is to uh, be in community, to be in contact with others. One of the difficult aspects of difficult thoughts or emotions is a sense of isolation. Right? And so it can be very valuable to talk it over with friends, have like-minded people, um, go to a Wednesday morning session where we talk about difficult emotions together. <laughs> okay. That can be uh, very, very crucial to um, be able to uh, share notes because what we basically, one of the uh, mysterious things that we find with mindfulness practice is we find how common our conditioning is. We find how common, how common the patterns are of our own minds. We like to think in this culture that we have these very unique, special minds and personalities and so forth. That does not survive, that view does not survive careful looking. <laughs> that the commonalities are actually uh, dominant, really. The commonalities of our being, which is actually, it's bad news for the, the sense of total uniqueness of me. But it's good news for uh, compassion and connection and for actually resolving our problems. It's very good news because we're way, we're way, way more common than we think. And that, um, and, and the conditioning naturally is going to be similar. So we can, we can notice that. Another very important skillful means for working with difficult thoughts and emotions is really tracking for the storyline. What is the narrative with this difficult emotion, this difficult thought that's taking hold? Sometimes we don't actually realize what it is. What is really going on? What am I really afraid of? What's my judgmental narrative about the other person? And if we could only do one thing in working with difficult thoughts and emotions, and hopefully we can do more than one thing, but if we could only do one thing, I would say track 
your repetitive negative storylines and don't feed them. That goes a very, very long way. Goes a very, very long way. Part of another skillful means for working with challenging thoughts and emotions is to start looking for patterns. You know, initially we may say, oh, I'm angry. Let me just be with the anger. Let me feel it. Very helpful. But we also want to, to start sort of stepping back and saying, what was the stimulus for the anger? And what happened when the anger stayed for a while? Where did it go? What are the patterns? What are my patterns of reactivity? You know, what we be, have to become really uh, experts on seeing what types of stimuli tend to activate me and really know what those are. We, in other words, we study our own patterns. We study them, we study them very carefully. There's also a very important role for bringing in the wisdom dimension and sometimes reflecting on, in the context of a difficult thought or emotion. Sometimes it can be personal. We can bring in, for example, reflection on impermanence. When we're having a difficult experience with thoughts or emotions, impermanence is our good friend. When we're having something wonderful and blissful and pleasant happening, impermanence may not be such a good friend. <laughs> because it's going to tell us it's going to change, right? It's going to shift. And it's, um, that can be helpful in the midst of a difficult experience. Just say, this will change. This will not last forever. That's always going to be true. It may last longer than you like, <laughs> but it won't last forever. It will change. Um, especially if you don't feed it, if we don't feed it. So we can reflect on impermanence. We can, again, reflect on what leads to my suffering. What are the triggers? What are the patterns? What helps me? We can reflect and say, uh, when I'm reactive, is there something that I'm holding on to? Is there a scenario with this situation that I'm grasping onto? It has to be this way. We can use wisdom reflections to help us with that. We can also, from the point of view of wisdom reflections, ask, is there what we might call a thick sense of self that's built around this difficult experience? You know, can I, you know, we can see this very much, let's say, with the judgmental mind. We can see, I'm, you know, that happened, and I really have this sense of I messed up. And we can explore, what does that strong sense of self feel like? You know, what's, what's going on there? And we can study that. We can use difficult experiences in part to see um, how a strong sense of self arises and can, can, can pass away. For some of our patterns, it can be very valuable to work with... Um, people who are more specialized in a certain area. Some of our patterns may be helped tremendously by uh, working with a psychologist, for example. Or another, um, an area which I've had some training in, uh, trauma, is also, can also be relevant. There are some of our patterns of distress which are locked in at a physiological level in relation to trauma and with those situations, it actually isn't so helpful just to open up 
let me just be mindful of this. That can actually be re-traumatizing. So in some situations, we actually need someone who has some specialized knowledge of our particular patterns. What I'm offering in terms of mindfulness and skillful means is general. And in some situations, it's actually those won't be the most skillful. In other words, things are a little complicated sometimes, right? But these are general purpose tools that are very valuable. Okay. Ready for fear? Ready, <laughs> ready, ready for the investigation of fear? And I think we can, again, uh, along the way in looking at difficult experiences, it's valuable just to touch base with some of the most challenging ones, or ones that are common. And, you know, and Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma says this, the only real prison is fear, and the only real freedom is freedom from fear. And fear and its variants are, can be very pervasive. And again, it can be tremendously helpful to use these three sets of tools. How do we balance? How can we be mindful? And what are skillful means for working, working with fear? Or, again, um, other types of thoughts and emotions which are, as it were, in the fear family. Anxiety or uh, trepidation or, or other, other types of experiences. This is from the Sufi poet Hafiz. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. <laughs> uh, and fear is, is very common. And so again, we want to be able to be skillful with fear. And one of the um, powers of mindfulness practice and generally of our practice is that it gives uh, the potential to actually hang out when there is fear, when there is anxiety, and explore it. And tremendous uh, insight can come from that. I know that for me, I've had, I was just thinking earlier, I probably have had at least four or five retreats where fear has been a dominant theme, either for part or all of the retreat. One retreat that was an early retreat, there was fear virtually the whole time for 10 days. right? And, but it was at a level where it was workable. There was enough balance so I could work with it. And sometimes fear is not in that way, at that level, in which case we need to do that, which comes back to balance. Ultimately, fear is quite workable in the, in the way that fear or anxiety is um, workable for a mountain climber, right? There is fear, but it doesn't paralyze one. Or there's anxiety. You know, we know that when we've, when we've uh, done polls, or when polls have been done for Americans, what are Americans most afraid of? Public speaking. Public speaking, right? Death, forget it. <laughs> you know, pain, it's, it's up there, but public speaking is the worst, right? Public speaking, there is the most fear about public speaking because I guess it's the fear of making a fool of oneself which is a kind of ego death, which is worse than physical death, something like that. <laughs> something like that. Um, and, and so uh, when we practice with fear, it's not that fear goes away. I think a lot of fear can go away. But it's that sometimes when we get really familiar with fear, we're not paralyzed by it. We can work with it. You know, I notice, you know, um, at the moment, I am engaged in the most feared activity of Americans. 
right at this moment? What's happening? <laughs> Is there anxiety? Um, I, I know that when I first started doing more of this, there was anxiety, and I had to get used to it. I remember the first time I ever gave a, a public talk, I think, or at least in a really public setting as opposed to just being with some friends or people who, who knew me well. I was very grateful that I was sitting behind a desk because my knees were literally clanking back and forth like that, right? And so as, a, as someone who speaks a lot, I've had to work with, um, and there was anxiety at the beginning. I remember the first time I ever spoke at Spirit Rock. You know, I had made Spirit Rock into, maybe like you do, into this big thing, okay? Right? Gosh, I, you know, I've only been a practitioner. And now I, I speak at Spirit Rock. This is huge. I remember the first time I ever did a day long. I didn't sleep the night before. It was a big thing, right? And um, true confessions. <laughs> true confessions. So we have to somehow find ways to study it. And then when it comes up, we can notice it in ways that are not necessarily paralyzing, right? And so, but there's a tremendous value from, from studying. And fear, again, is very pervasive. I mean, again, it's pervasive. It's almost in our system sometimes. We, we live with a certain amount of fear. I know I've had the experience, um, actually, when I've gone to um, British Columbia and crossed the border, I felt, oh, gosh, I'm entering a society which has less fear in the general pop. I don't know if you've experienced that. Uh, I experienced that in my body almost, like I, we carry around a certain level of subtle or not so subtle fear just walking on the streets. And I don't know if, if that resonates with you, but that's what I've experienced. I've gone sometimes to, maybe I'm just projecting Canada as this great <laughs> bastion of civility. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's, there, there's, um, there's data, right? There's the level of homicides and violence per capita is way, way less, right? That's, there, that's documented, right? So um, that's, that's interesting. And, and there's, a, you know, there's tremendous fear. I mean, there's fear at the level of the government, you know. Um, I don't know if the NSA is listening to this. <laughs> May you be enlightened as soon as possible. <laughs> so, You know, tremendous, there's tremendous fear at many levels of society, right? So the surveillance and, and everything. So what we do with uh, fear is, again, if anxiety or fear is there, first we want to do what helps us to come back to balance, right? If the fear is entering into the physiology where, where we can't really function so well, then we do one of those multiple things to come back to balance. Very important to remember that. Just what do I need to do to come back to balance? Um, that's if it's way out of balance. I'm not saying just if there's some fear or anxiety. Sometimes it's there and it's going to be workable. Like I can notice it. You know, I can notice it. It's workable. It's there. It's good to know it's there. So we use, we use, the, um, we use those balancing tools. Then we can use mindfulness and really start studying fear. And that gets fascinating. You know, in some of the retreats that I've done, Maybe I'll, I'll t go back and talk about one way to balance, you know, what, or different ways to balance. And I think I've talked from time to time. Do you remember my, my um, uh, retreat, which was in Colorado? Some of you do, Will, where, where I had an experience where I was uh, camping and um, I had fears of a bear. Okay. Those of you who don't know this, I was, it, was, it was one of the ways to come back to balance. 
And so I was, um, I was uh, going to a retreat at, uh, in southwest Colorado at Taramandala. This was a few years ago. And I wanted to be a little bit remote in camping, and so they brought me to this very nice site, very nice, not near other people so much. And then they said, uh, there, there, there was a, you know, a week ago there was a bear that came through here, and it tore up the tent. Luckily, no one was in it. <laughs> but we caught the bear, and we moved it 50 miles away. So I said, okay, I'll go there. And I don't know what state of mind I was in at the moment, but I agreed. And then, you know, went, you know, we started the retreat, and I came back at, whatever, 10 o'clock, and lay down to sleep, and I said, hmm, a bear. And you know how that is. Probably many of us, or most of us, have had experiences in camping. And this is partly what we study in fear, how one small sound gets interpreted in a certain way. Do you know that one? <laughs> you know, it actually could be the wind blowing a leaf, and suddenly it becomes the imminent arrival of the bear. <laughs> and so, anyway, at a certain point I noticed there was fear. It was continuing. I wasn't going to sleep, and I, so I said, let's do metta practice, loving-kindness practice, which was, as many of you know, originally an antidote to fear, as given by the Buddha. He said, use loving-kindness is essentially taking refuge in the kind heart. Wonderful refuge for, wonderful resource for fear if you can go to compassion, self-compassion, loving-kindness, and it's strong enough, it could be an antidote. So I went to metta, and eventually I just kept doing it until I felt the fear wasn't there, and it, it was like three hours. Three hours of loving-kindness practice, at which point... For whatever reason, I wasn't afraid. I mean, intellectually, I knew it was unlikely the bear was going to be there, but fear doesn't always accept um, good intellectual guidance. I think we know that, right? That fear is often uh, quite, quote-unquote, irrational. Right? And it, you know, because survival is at stake, right? And am I going to accept some naive, rational account of the bear if my survival is at stake? I don't think so. Right? And so um, this is part of what we explore when we study fear, right? How does fear work in the mind? What's its logic? Does it accept our clarity and, and whatever? We, we get this by mindfulness. So, but metta was a wonderful tool. And after three hours, there was no more fear. I wasn't thinking about the bear. Something settled. Maybe at that point I could accept my uh, rational clarity about it, and I just went to sleep, slept soundly, didn't think about the bear anymore, and didn't think about it for the next week. And the bear didn't appear. <laughs> and you're still And here I am. <laughs> so then, you know, we, so we, we use different tools to help us come back to balance. Then we can uh, be mindful, and we study the fear, and we look at what it's like, and that is tremendously uh, illuminating. We study how does it manifest in the body, right? And that's fascinating. We study can how it manifests as being on edge, or being restless, or sometimes there's um, constriction maybe in the chest. And we just study that. We study, okay, what are the physical manifestations of fear? That's tremendously helpful for the next time it comes, because we will more quickly know it's there. Um, we can notice how it's somewhat uh, paralyzing, how there's agitation and so forth, tightening maybe in the body. 
we can see what the content is, explore what's, what's the fear really about. And it's good to acknowledge that there's something intelligent in fear, right? It's, it's about survival, right? But there also can be confusion. This is from the American uh, monk uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu, who uh, directs a monastery called the Metta Monastery uh, near San Diego. He says, think of a deer at, at night suddenly caught in a hunter's headlights. It's confused, angry. It senses danger and that it's weak in the face of the danger it wants to escape. These five elements, confusion, aversion, a sense of danger, a sense of weakness, and desire to escape, are present to a greater or lesser extent in every fear. The confusion and aversion are the unskillful elements. Even if the deer has many openings to escape from the hunter, its confusion, aversion, and aversion might cause it to miss them. The same holds true for human beings. The mistakes and evils we commit when finding ourselves weak in the face of danger come from confusion and aversion. So we start to see what is the fear about, you know? And I can think of, um, you know, another time when I had fear for a retreat, uh, almost the whole retreat, and got to look at it, I was fearful of something happening. And as I looked at it more and more, I could see that the fear was this total construction of the future. Fear is always about the future, right? That's good to know. It's always a construction of what will happen in the future. And we, we bring in the mindfulness and we, we, start to, we start to see that. And I, as I looked at it more, I could see I was just creating a construction that was like an illusion. That was very interesting to see. And these are some of the fruits of being mindful with fears. You know, we can see, or maybe there is a concern, but maybe I'm building it up tremendously to the point where it's got a reality which it doesn't deserve. A lot of fear is like that. We build it up, we develop thoughts, we construct them, and they become guiding narratives, even if the level of evidence for them is very weak. That's how fear works, right? And so we get to, we get to see that. Um, we see how the mind proliferates, how thoughts continue, and they just proliferate and go on forever. So we notice that, you know, and again, we can notice how fears, and this is especially true in the social realm, people develop, you know, demagogues and dictators make people fearful for certain narratives. They build them up and make them sound as if they're going to be true, but they're usually not, right? But people get caught in them because there's fear. It's very easy when we're fearful to get caught with a certain narrative. That's why it's so valuable to be mindful of the narrative. So I could say a lot more. I actually could probably talk for another hour about fear, but I'd be afraid of going over <laughs> over time and not having enough time for discussion. So um, there are all sorts of skillful means. We can sometimes use reflections to remind us. We can ask ourselves questions. Am I building up a narrative? 
what's going on. We can use practices that help us at the level of the body, where often fear has a big impact. We can use metta, we can offer ourselves compassion. But I think the invitation is to work with all three of these kinds of resources, ways to come back to balance, Really be mindful. Next time there's fear or anxiety and it's there for a while, study it. What does the mind do? What's going on in the body? And over time, that can, be, that can be very, very helpful. And then finding various kinds of skillful means, such as the ones I mentioned earlier, that can help one. So ultimately, what we do is to develop this uh, um, toolbox, if we want to call it that, with tools, we develop, uh, to use another metaphor, we develop resources. But mostly we have to really stay in with these difficult experiences and explore them. And really get to know them well so that they become um, familiar. In a sense, they are, as uh, Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say, friends that we invite in to have a cup of tea with us. And that they're no longer the enemy, but they're part of our nature that has some degree of intelligence and some degree of confusion. And we want to make use of the intelligence and work through the confusion and the reactions. That's what we do with all of the difficult experiences. We don't demonize them. We don't make them just totally negative, but we work with them skillfully. So I'll close with a wonderful uh, line from the poet uh, William Butler Yeats. He says, to look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier in a battlefield. To look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier in a battlefield. I believe that's true. And that's what we're developing herein. We're developing um, skill, mindfulness, wisdom, courage, and compassion for ourselves, for all the parts of our lives. So thank you for your kind attention. <laughs> and why don't we use the, we'll use the microphone again for people. Okay. So any questions or reflections? A few years ago, I read an article about um, this cascade of chemicals that affect the body when yeah. someone is has a is angry or been embarrassed or had a difficult encounter yeah. or an acute fear. And what it said was that women clear these chemicals from their body at a much slower rate than men. Hmm. And if this, in fact, is correct, it explains some stuff, I guess, um, <laughs> that, you know, I've personally observed, it, it seems, anyway, it, it seems as if that might be true. A yeah. At least it seems true for me. Hmm. And so if that's true, it kind of uh, re would affect the idea of impermanence because the feeling would last longer, the yeah. chemical reaction might last longer. Also, the feeling of... Um, non-identification yeah. or not taking it personally yeah. and 
And but the with the knowledge that it does pass, yeah. but the time that women may experience may just naturally last longer. Yeah. Thanks, Adrian. Yes, that would be great knowledge to have very, very widespread. You know, that's the sort of knowledge which can be very helpful. Oh, uh, here's anger happening. There's a physiological reaction. Um, you know, if I'm at this level of uh, this level of triggering, it's going to last. Uh, you know, my body's going to be flooded by various chemicals, hormones, whatever, for the next uh, 40 minutes. And uh, it'll pass, but maybe I don't act in that 40 minutes, or or that I just know it. That would be great knowledge to have, yeah, yeah, and to know that there's a differential. Uh, and probably there are probably other factors. Do you remember remember what the you know the women have tend to have it twice as long? And do you remember? I, the, I don't remember. The, but, yeah. but enough to make a significant difference. Yeah. Know how when men and women have when men and women have arguments, men appear to get over it faster, or men may feel that women are holding it forever. You know, and you're so emotional, (laughs) (laughs) and that you know part of it could be you know rolling it around in your head, but part of it is a chemical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To know that and to. And, and they're going to be in that, you know, in that kind of interaction. There are also, there, there are a lot of other, other factors as well, you know, such as um, ability to access emotions, tendency to go to analysis rather than emotions, and the physiology may make that uh, um, may dictate some of that. Yeah. Other, yeah, please. Yes, thank you. Um, this may be really basic, but I'm curious in yeah. your three-hour um, work and yeah. uh, the bear story. Yeah. What was that work like? Well, that was um, that was doing loving kindness practice, and it was uh, saying phrases. Which is, you, do you know that practice? No, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's one of our core practices, and it's a practice. Uh, it's it's the main way that we cultivate the kind heart. The practices that we've inherited are involve the internal quiet repetition of phrases like, may I be safe. (laughs) 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 May I be happy. (laughs) May I, you know, uh, may I be healthy or as healthy as possible and so forth. May my life unfold with ease. (laughs) And, uh, but people, use phrases that are good for them and but they tend to evoke a sense of warmth and there's a whole um, practice which you know to, the instructions would take a little bit of a while to give fully but that's what it is and I was doing that I think partly for me partly for others but I think some for the bear <laughs> you know um, but it was basically uh, we sometimes talk about those heart practices as sometimes being useful as antidotes to shift the energy of a particular state. That's what I was doing at that time. They, they were antidotes. That doesn't uh, uproot fear, but it, it helps in the moment to come back to balance. And I want to make a very clear distinction. 
Ultimately, we want to use mindfulness and insight to see clearly the nature of fear. That's really where the wisdom comes from. Um, but with metta, in that instance, I was shifting. I was shifting away from fear, partly to get some sleep. You know. Yeah, thank you. Observations, reflections, questions? So I'm wondering if you can, um, so you said to clearly see the nature of the fear. Yeah. Even when one does, um, then, then what? Be, um, I guess I want a little bit more of an answer for that. And I um, specifically in this case, I'm thinking of violence, like if a person or somebody you know or loved has been a victim of violence, mm -hmm. especially um, like like women or just by nature being small and being vulnerable to mm -hmm. like what do you, even when it's clear so what then what do you do when it's sort of very real and part of life yeah so so i think the um the uh first of all the um the study of fear is really crucial and we would typically do that in, in safer and more protected environments. And so the application to actually dangerous environments is, a, is, a, is a, a further step. And most of what I've been talking about is, is well, most, most of it, not all of it, is especially um, using the protected environment of meditation, retreat, and so forth to get to know fear when we when we, can, when we know it and say, oh, when I'm fearful, I have a tendency for my mind to proliferate, for the body to do this, for the body to do that, that can be translated into a dangerous moment where, like the mountain climber, I'm not, as, uh, I'm not so paralyzed where I can actually keep my uh, wits about me, which is really crucial. So th that's really the emphasis of what we're doing here. You know, that, that being said, um, in... In a dangerous situation, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really what it's about. It's like if I practice in non-dangerous situations, then I'll be able to have access to my kind heart or my um, my wisdom or my intelligence and not be paralyzed, which is going to be tremendously helpful in many circumstances to actually give oneself a better chance of surviving and really, I mean, I've, I've heard, you, maybe you too have heard a lot of stories of people who were able to keep their wits about them in dangerous situations. And, you know, I mean, I, I was just reading a bunch of those stories in, uh, I was reading Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication book, and there, there are some very powerful, intense stories of people keeping their center in dangerous situations and actually being able to have some empathy for the um, person who was even threatening violence to the point where that person became disarmed. I mean, I'm not saying that's always going to work, of course, but there were some amazing stories like that. Um, but I think the main point is that we, 
we practice and study, and that's really the point of the whole series, is that if we study fear or anger or judgments in protected environments with lower degree of difficulties, simpler situations, then we can bring out what we learn there into more complex, more fast-moving, more um, higher degree of difficulty situations. But, yeah, I mean, generally, so that's really the aim of this. It's like uh, we train, we train in working with the difficult emotions in protected environments and then bring it out. And there probably, uh, you know, in, in a given situation, there probably would be um, a number of different ways to respond. So probably not a formula, right? But but uh, different ways to respond. You know, a major way to respond is just to remove oneself from danger as easily as possible, or to. But you know, like in terms of the issues you're raising with women. So some some women choose to develop more um, self-defense skills, right? Which can help uh, with some further degree of self-confidence, which would help to avoid a paralysis, right? So that would be that would be one strategy among among many that would be possible. You know, another one would be to get at the larger issue socially through being active on those issues. Which, you know, so there's the immediate there's the immediate response and there's the long term response. So short response. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe maybe last one. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to say about free-floating fear or anxiety that is always ready to go off in one direction or another? Like, aha, that, that's what's yeah. going to happen. What about free-floating anxiety or, or fear? So probably a few different responses, and then this will be the last, last one. Um, that might be something, first of all, that one could study maybe with a specialist, you know, to look into it. Some of, you know, we're, we're, if there's any residue of trauma, there's going to be some of that free-floating anxiety, which is trying to avoid the past traumatic experience. And, you know, generally what happens is that it, you know, it, that uh, wariness is inappropriately brought to every situation to avoid the past overwhelming experience, right, which makes a certain amount of sense, but then it's, and so that one would maybe work with someone who is skilled in working with that. And um, some of it you can, you can study in mindfulness. You know, for example, part of what I discovered in my, it took a while, but in my first years of mindfulness, I could see that I had a certain conditioning where uh, I would, I think my conditioning was to have a strategy of controlling things to be safe, which many of us might have variants of that or aspects of that. And when I actually got deeper into mindfulness, I, th- I could see at a certain point, I was actually scared of the future. There was, you know, it's a, it's a kind of free-floating, it was a way that I was structuring experience, was that um, every new moment was uncertain. Yipes! <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry, I don't mean to stimulate anyone's (laughs) fear on that, but at a certain point I could see that and I would sit in meditation, I would just watch each moment come 
And at a certain point, I could watch and tune in to that free-floating fear. And that noticing bit helped me to deconstruct it. You know, so some of it can occur in that way. If we can become noticed, that, and maybe we try out in safe situations, in situations we think are quite safe, we'll say, I'm going to go here. And if I notice that, so if we have to study it so we know what it's like in the body. And then I go into a situation and say, let me do an experiment where if I see that, I'm just going to say, no. Uh, or I say, um, relax, kid. Uh, usually a ki- related to being a kid. And I say, relax, and I just try to let it go. In a safe situation, experiment with that, and then gradually bring it out into situations of increasing levels of difficulty you know, within, uh, within the guidance given by wisdom. So it's a, it's a great question, though, and that, that just begins to respond. I want to acknowledge that. So let's close by, uh, I'll invite everyone, there's something that was helpful from our morning. Bring that to mind, and particularly connect with any intentions for your own practice and experience related to anything that we've covered. And some of us may want to focus on being with challenging thoughts and emotions for the next week when they come up. Maybe not above a certain level of difficulty. (laughs) Your choice. And we close by recognizing that we, um, we do these practices, these inquiries, both for ourselves and for others and generally for our world and for all beings. May our practice and our time together be of benefit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.